Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. This is Little Atoms, a radio show about ideas and culture. With me, Neil Denny. On today's show, Natasha Calder. On her novel, Whether Violent or Natural. Natasha Calder studied at Trinity College Dublin for her first degree and then at Cambridge for an MPhil. Her short fiction has been published in Stinging Fly, Lackingtons and Curiosities and she is the co-author of The Offset. And today we're going to be talking about Natasha's new novel, which is Whether Violent or Natural. Natasha, welcome to Little Atoms. Hi, Neil. Thanks so much for having me. Um, First of all, could you tell us how you would describe the novel? Sure. Um, So Whether Violent or Natural is set in a not too distant future when uh, antimicrobial resistance has devastated civilization, And it follows... Two characters, Kit and Creven, who are surviving on an island, and we look at what happens when a woman washes up on their island and that sort of engulfs them in a crisis. And the whole novel is told from the perspective of Kit. Now, we have to establish at the beginning that this is very much a novel in which we're going to have to be careful about what we talk about because there are twists and secrets and betrayals, etc., So having said that, let's proceed carefully. Um, (laughs) Tell us, first of all, I guess what inspired it? Yeah, so I'd been interested in antibiotic resistance for some time, just sort of by way of stories would crop up occasionally and I'd read about them and I think it was an interesting thing. And then in about 2016, some scientists in Japan discovered a bacteria outside a bottle plant in Osaka that was capable of digesting plastic. There you go which was fascinating and is a wonderful possibility for dealing with plastic waste and so on. And it's very, very exciting. But having been following so much about antibiotic resistance and understanding, you know, how little we as humans understand the capabilities of microbes and their life cycles and their ability to evolve and adapt, I started wondering sort of how much of our infrastructure is plastic and what would happen if such bacteria eventually did you know, were used and then got out of hand in the same way that we're now seeing with things that were commonly treatable, medically speaking, and now are resistant to penicillin and other such antibiotics. Um, So that was sort of the starting idea for everything many, many years ago. I didn't really have a story to go with those interests until a few years back when I'd, well, I'd actually been working on something else completely unrelated to antibiotic resistance. And it wasn't going very well, and I hated it desperately. Um, but I sort of worked away at it and sort of whittled it down further and further until I got to maybe a couple of elements that were working a bit better. Uh, but it still wasn't quite coming together. And then this very weird experience, like a, it felt like I'd been bashing my head against a wall, and then the wall crumbled away, and there was my main character, Kit, on the other side, sort of wondering what had taken so long, and suddenly everything 
fell into place sort of through Kit's voice and then starting to tell this story about antibiotic resistance and plastic eating microbes. And that's my long answer to the question where the idea came from. And just tell us some more about the idea of antibiotic resistance then in the in the real world. So I guess yeah. once you decided that, that was going to be this was the time to write that story, I presume you you researched into that more. So what is actually happening? Yeah, sure. So um, what's happening is in our real world now, um, many of the antibiotics that we've been relying on are no longer useful for treating various diseases. The example that I quite like to use to sort of put it into perspective is when I was a newborn, when I was six weeks old, so this was in 1990, I had an umbilical cord infection and I nearly died, but I received an intravenous course of penicillin and and everything worked out okay. Now, if I'd been born just 60 years earlier, that penicillin wouldn't have been widely available and I'd have died. And as we're speaking now, just a little over 30 years later, that particular bacteria that's responsible for that kind of infection is already resistant to penicillin. And there are very few antibiotics that can be used on it. So if you push that to another 30 years to match the 60 years, you know, on either side of my birth, would I die again if I'd been born 60 years later? And we're finding because of overprescription of antibiotics, because of things like antibiotics being given to livestock prophylactically to stop them from getting ill, that our resistance as a whole is antibiotics resistance as a whole is is increasing the who predicts it to be one of the uh, top 10 global public health threats and we've got a sort of an estimation of about 10 million annual deaths worldwide by 2050 so it's a really pressing concern and one of the things that's not happening at the same time of all of this is uh funding for development of new antibiotics which is not happening at all and it doesn't seem to be a discussion that's being had widely either you know occasionally you hear people speaking about oh you know it's such a shame and these antibiotics are no longer uh, effective on the london population or inhabitants of certain countries and we sort of talk about it sometimes as if it's just if it's just natural as if the resistance is not being caused by our active misuse but yeah so it's a fascinating a fascinating area definitely and grim and so in the world of the novel, mm. let's talk about, and again, let's just caveat this with Kit is our narrator. Yeah. And throughout the book, she fills in, um, and I'm doing invert, I'm going to do invisible inverted commas here. Sure. She fills in with what has happened in the backstory in the world. Now, obviously, if tomorrow suddenly we had no antibiotics, that would be bad. Lots of people would unnecessarily die. Uh, It would be a great tragedy. But of course, humans lived most of their history without antibiotics. Um, And so in and of itself, that is not something that would necessarily end civilization as we know it. However, in the story, there is also this plastic eating bacteria. So tell us, when we first meet the characters in the book, Kit is relaying the story what has happened in the world through her telling? Firstly, um, just on the point of antibiotic resistance itself wouldn't devastate humanity. You're right. Obviously, humans have lived without antibiotics for hundreds of years. But there's a great paper by a scientist called Saskia Popescu about the existential threat of antimicrobial resistance. And certainly while humanity would survive, it's not simply that people get infections and they'll die, but it means this golden medical age that we're in right now 
will end completely. There'll be no elective surgeries. It'll be difficult to even have chemotherapy because of what it will mean for immune systems. Maternity uh, death rates will go up. Infant death rates will go up. We'll deal with dead livestock. We'll deal with famine. There'll be all these massive knock-on effects. But um, to, yes, go back to your actual question about the worlds that Kit introduced us to. So it has not merely this antimicrobial resistance, but it is dealing with the impact of this plastic-eating bacteria, which, as I said before, was inspired by what's happening in our real world now, which is that a number of bacteria and other microbes have been identified that are capable of digesting plastic, which is an exciting way of dealing with our landfill and all sorts of things. Um, but in the world of the novel, these bacteria and other such microbes have been developed to the point where the, what now takes several months or years happens very briefly and those microbes have devastated a great piece of the infrastructure including medical equipment which means that the very people who you'd rely on to try and vaccinate you say to help you deal with all kinds of various infections are possibly carrying that infection on their equipment it means that transport modems your laptop your cables even the clothes that you wear, which are made with nylon and polyester, are all subject to decay in a way that they aren't now because there are so many bits of our infrastructure that do rely on plastic, whether it's food storage or delivery of medical devices and medications. And so in the world of the novel, all of that is crumbling with disastrous effects. I'm going to wait until we, we get into the second half now to actually talk in more detail about the two characters. Uh, sure. Before we do that, let's talk about where they are. So they're on an island. The island yeah. is basically a refuge from the mainland, from what's going on over there. So tell us about the island itself, what's there, its geography, etc. Sure. So the island was partly inspired, well, I had both uh, Lindisfarne up here in the north and uh, St. Michael's Mount down in Cornwall uh, when I was putting that island together. And what attracted me about both of those locations, which is shared with the island in the book, is that they're joined to the mainland by a causeway, um, a tidal causeway. So there are certain times of the day when it's possible to get by foot from the island to the mainland, uh, which means that there are these moments where the island is extremely exposed. So characters are, are trapped, but not safe, particularly. But the island is overgrown, covered with trees. It's deserted apart from Kit and Crevin, and at the top of the island is a ruined castle that's been ruined for hundreds of years, I would expect. And below that is a set of catacombs, and within the catacombs is a concrete bunker that Kit refers to as the den that's been left behind by some other survivalists who are now nowhere in sight, and it's well equipped, and that's where Kit and Crevin survive. So it's a very sort of nested existence, sort of the centre of a, of a stack of Russian dolls. And they rarely venture outside of the den apart from at night to ensure that no one on the mainland will be able to see them. And that also means keeping away from sort of the north side of the island that would be visible from the mainland and having to get through the sort of dangerous overgrown terrain in the dark, which they do do on several occasions. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices 
down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Say hello to a new era of mental health care. Cerebral is here to help you achieve your mental wellness goals with professional therapy and medication management support. 100% online. You'll experience the all-new Cerebral way, an innovative approach to mental wellness designed around you. You'll get a personalized treatment plan from a therapist, prescriber, or both in a safe and judgment-free space. Your Cerebral therapist or prescriber will outline a customized plan with clear milestones along the way, so you can get to feeling your best. With Cerebral, you're not alone in your mental health journey. We're here to empower you to live a fulfilling life. So take that first step towards a brighter future and sign up today at Cerebral.com slash podcast and use code ACAST to get 15% off your first month. Offer only valid on monthly plans. Other exclusions may apply. Offer ends July 31st, 2024. See site for details. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Listen to Little Atoms. I'm Neil Denny. Today I'm talking to Natasha Calder, and we're talking about her novel, whether violent or natural. And so, Natasha, yeah, let's talk about Kit, who is a narrator. Mm. And well, you've made it very difficult for us to talk about both of these Sorry. characters yeah. because um, because of what happens in the novel, where the novel goes, and and you know we find out more and more about them. But tell us what we can about. So if we were just embarking upon this novel at the beginning, when we first meet Kit, tell us who she is. Yeah, so I hope it's not giving too much away to say that Kit is a bored, highly informed fantasist who uses language to shape the world and control the other people in it, which really, for all intents and purposes, is only Creven at the moment. Um, Kit's been on the island for longer than Creven has, but is, despite being sort of smaller and weaker than Creven is, is sort of able to control him or hopes to control him through uh, fairly manipulative ploys. I would say Kit is also hyper-fluent, at least when it comes to the interiority, but usually uses a much more babyish way of speaking when interacting with Creven himself out loud. Um, and that's part of sort of Kit's general taste for manipulation. Yeah, they have a, a very weird relationship <laughs> yeah. between the two. It's quite creepy a lot of the yeah. time that the sort of interactions 
between the two people unsettling i'll say rather than rather than creepy so tell us more about where her voice comes from yeah so it's hard to because it's still quite difficult to work out where exactly it came from it was this experience of like hearing a voice that was then putting down or working in conjunction with something else and which I would rationalise as saying like I'd spent so long consciously working on something that I hit a point where I could work on instinct. So at the time, I wasn't really thinking too hard about the different elements I was putting into Kit's voice. But in hindsight, I would say that Kit's voice, I mean, if you unpacked it, you could probably identify all the material that there is in the bunker. So Kit hasn't spent much time off the island or outside of the bunker, but there are shelves of books inside the bunker, including a set of illustrated encyclopedias that Kit has used to piece together a wider knowledge of the world. And I think from the way that Kit's talk, you could also infer the presence of a certain amount of poetry, the presence of works of John Donne, the presence of scripture, the presence of a certain amount of children's literature. Kit has a way of speaking that uses a lot of alliteration and assonance and wordplay that you do find in writers like, say, James Thurber where part of it is to draw your attention to the fabulous uses of language and to have fun with that. And part of that is because there's little else going on. You know, Kit would otherwise be quite bored, I think, if there wasn't the chance to play with language. So I think those those are really the key elements that come come into Kit's voice. But then, of course, there's the way Kit engages with Crevin, which is much more using a sort of childish register. And there is a sense in which Kit, I would say that Kit has a vested interest in maintaining a childishness. Part of that is, I would say, a test of the relationship with Crevin and a test of Kit as well, sort of, to keep Crevin in his place as protector, but also to challenge him in any sort of desire that he may be building. And I think Kit is also sort of presenting a self-challenge as well, because I don't think Kit is terribly comfortable with desire, even though it's a tool that can be used to control Crevin as well if that makes sense. Oh, indeed. And you alluded to something there as well. I wanted to talk about where both the title of the novel, but also the titles of each of the chapters comes from. Yes. So well spotted, they all came from John Donne's sermon, Death's Jewel, uh, which he preached right at the end of his life a couple of days. Oh, I think it was just a few days before he died, um, around the time when he did other creepy things like pose for an engraving wearing his uh, shroud. And it's a wonderful, dark, twisted sermon about what happens when we die and the disintegration of bodies and vermiculation and everything like that. And it's just, it's an amazing text. And it's something that I read and reread frequently whilst I was writing, sort of coming back to it in the same way that... um, I think it's in, I can't remember whether it's in The Moonstone or a different Wilkie Collins novel, but one of the characters sort of uses Robertson Crusoe as a text for bibliomancy, sort of returning to it every time there's a problem and then just flipping open to a page and finding a way forward through that. And if I hit a problem in the text, I would go back to that particular sermon, reread it, and then I would find the way forward was sort of clear after that. And it has the same creepy... (laughs) Uh, atmosphere that I wanted to use in the novel and I think it engages with some of the same themes of atomization and rebirth and resurrection um, and obliteration and oblivion. Tell us something about Crevin. Again, obviously we only Mm. see him through the eyes of Kit and 
Um, so tell us what we know about him at the start of the novel. Mm. So Craven is taciturn, uh, quite serious. Um, he's spent a lot more time on the mainland than Kit has, and that experience has marked itself on his body. He's heavily scarred. He's also got a set of marks along the inside of one arm, which have been delivered. You know, they're specific tattoos, images that um, mark each time he's received a bacterial vaccination. And he doesn't tell Kit much about his time on the mainland. And that's a sort of point of tension between the two that he won't be more generous with information about himself. He is strong and capable of extreme violence, but very protective towards Kit but we, we don't know much about his back history. And we've talked about your fascination in the idea of um, antibiotic resistance yeah. that influenced the novel. But in terms of this as a, a dystopian novel, as, you know, as, as one of that, that long tradition of novels, was there other dystopian fiction that was an influence on it? Um, in terms of specific dystopias, I'm not sure. Um, the main thing I was thinking of, actually, in terms of other fiction that I wanted to draw on was in this time of adaptations and fiction that's very cinematic and informed by televisual practices and so on. I really wanted to write something that would exist most purely in the written word. And there are a few books I can think of like that that I definitely would have had in mind. So I was writing things like um, Ridley Walker or A Clockwork Orange or Flowers for Algernon or even Lincoln in the Bardo or um, the Chaos Walking trilogy by Patrick Ness where they just they have a way with the really breaking the rules of narration and I think particularly with Ridley Walker where that is a dystopia and where the end of the world setting allows so much to be done with the act of narration and um, the rules of language that I think it's really remarkable and obviously I'm not saying that I was capable of achieving such greatness but that was that was definitely what I was thinking of as I was writing more than any specific other dystopians. So to finish it off then can I get you to read us a bit? Yes absolutely so as I said at the top of the show um, the inciting incident of the novel involves a a half-drowned woman washing up on the island who Crevin then proceeds to pull from the waves and they bring her back into the, the bunker. So this is a section where Kit is just meditating on the woman's presence. She is malign, I know it. Malign as slander. A malediction delivered by the roaring surf, a curse sent by some minor god in retribution for some perceived slight, and for which the punishment is nothing more or less than ruin. Already Crevin and I are straining against one another, and she is not even awake. Our division is already wrought, already writ large by virtue of nothing more than her being here and alive. And once she's hale and whole, there'll be nothing to stop her from going about it properly, from cutting us apart like a knife, from biting through the knotted cord that binds us together. Me and dear Crevin, dear Crevin and me. It will no longer be us two, but us three, and nothing can come of that but imbalance and hurt. Sides will be taken, you mark my words. Allegiances forged and broken. She'll worm her way into Crevin's heart and turn it against me, while he, dull-witted fool that he is, will be none the wiser, flattered by the attention and pleased to find himself well-liked. He'll hardly know he's doing it.
She'll trust him with confidences and he'll respond in kind, pouring out all those little secrets that I've never yet been able to trick him into sharing. Maybe he'll even show her what's behind the leftmost door of the wardrobe. Then she'll laugh at me for not knowing, for not being allowed to look, for not being trusted. And Crevin will laugh too and be even more glad that she is there so he doesn't have to bother himself as much with me, silly little good-for-nothing that I am. Even then it will be only the beginning of my end, of my troubles, of my worries and woe. For her expertise will not be bound merely to all matters Crevin, no, not for ever so, not when she has an entire life lived out in the world to draw upon. She will know a great many things, will have seen plants and creatures of which I have never even read, will know their names and habits, their whys and whats and wherefores. It is a prospect terrible to behold to be beholden to, the thought of being corrected time and again, of having her prize apart every fissuring fracture of my piece-together knowledge, of having my every failure of understanding splayed wide and inspected, dissected, marvelled at. She will contradict me, see if she doesn't. She will take her worldly wisdom and dangle it enticing before me, teasing, pretending to share when her only wish is to crow, to mock to mark my wanting and lack, and I can't bear it, can't stand the thought of it, of how she will take my peace of mind and shiver it into dust and splinters, of how, before long, I might not be able to assert with even a passing confidence which weighs up or what it is that makes the sky seem blue in daylight. She will render me alien, even to myself, even here where I have prior claim, and I will lose everything. And there is Crevin, paying no thought to me or to all our possible futures, each one more disquieting than the next. Only come to check on the woman again and never mind what's eating me, never mind the thousand, thousand implications of what he's done. When he summons me over with an excited click of his tongue, I do as I am bidden, putting on an act that is docile and deferential, feigning an interest that I hope will be enough to mask my fear, my discontent. It takes my every effort not to slip, for I see at once what is the source and cause of all his delight. The woman's eyes are fluttering, beating from close to barely open, each flicker revealing a gaping slice of white. She is, it seems, trying to wake. But it's a task to which she is not yet equal, for which she is not yet ready. In another moment she is lost to sleep once more, Though surely, now, she will not remain so for long. So I've been talking to Natasha Calder. We've been talking about her novel, Whether Violent or Natural, which is out now in the UK from Bloomsbury. Natasha, thanks so much for taking the time to tell me about it. Thanks for having me, Neil. Uh, You're fine company. This episode of Little Atoms was produced, presented and edited by me, Neil Denny. Little Atoms is hosted by Acast and published by 89Up. The show is broadcast on Mondays and Saturdays on Resonance 104.4 FM. Thanks for listening. Okay, here's the situation. Our daughter Mia is leaving for her first sleepover. We have friends coming to stay... And we just got a puppy. 
So I go on Instacart and solve everything in one order from Kohl's. Fun PJs for Mia. Oh, new bedding for the guest room. And a vacuum cleaner that actually picks up pet hair. All delivered in as fast as 30 minutes. With Kohl's on Instacart, there's no such we can't fix. Visit instacart.com to get free delivery on your first three orders. Offer valid for a limited time. $10 minimum order. Additional terms apply. Spin your passion into a business with Shopify and break sales records with the world's best converting checkout. Let's hear that one more time. The world's best converting checkout. Shopify's legendary checkout makes it easier for customers to shop on your website, across social media, and everywhere in between. Now that's music to your ears. Any way you spin it, you can be a smash hit with Shopify. Start your dollar a month trial today at shopify.com slash records.